You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, a weekly news podcast made possible by members of The Local. We're recording this episode on Thursday, the 25th of May. And this week, we're going to talk about Swedish lifestyle trends that aren't really Swedish lifestyle trends at all. We'll discuss why the far-right Sweden Democrats are wondering what the EU ever did for Sweden and whether it's time for a Swexit. We'll talk about why some public servants are vowing to defy an element of the government's migration clampdown. And finally, we'll get insight from an expert in the studio on how the Swedish healthcare system works. I'm Paul Omani, and sitting with me here in Stockholm is this week's expert, Anna Gustafsson, healthcare reporter for Dagens Nyheter. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And we're also joined from Malmö by the locals, Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and Emma Lovegrain. Hello to you all down there. Hello. Hello. So before we get into this week's uh, stories, Anna, can I just ask you to tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes, uh, I'm a reporter in Dagens Nyheter and uh, since eight years I'm covering uh, healthcare. And I started to cover healthcare in the Stockholm area. Now I also do it nationally and also I make some international comparisons as well. So thanks for that, Anna. And we'll be hearing a lot more from you later and in a bonus episode where you answer some questions from the locals' readers. I just want to say quickly that if you enjoyed this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could help spread the word in whatever way you can from posting it on social media to just telling a friend, colleague or family member about it. And of course, if you're not a member of The Local, please consider joining. There's a link to our offers in the notes. Okay, let's get into what's been happening this week. And we're going to start with a headline in the Huffington Post that stopped us in our tracks. You can become a morning person thanks to this Swedish lifestyle practice. Becky, what is the lifestyle trend they're talking about and why is it all your fault? First off, it is totally not all my fault. It's totally your fault. Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> your fault. Um, anyway, this supposed lifestyle trend that all of us living in Sweden are busy practicing is Jökotta, which we actually discussed in our podcast about this time last year. It is essentially a very old, now very uncommon Swedish tradition practiced mainly by bird watchers and churchgoers. There are not that many of them left in Sweden. Um, where you wake up on Ascension Day morning and you go out into the forest to try and hear a cuckoo. Um, so I don't know how often you guys do that, but I'm personally doing it every morning at the moment. <laughs> There's not very many forests near me. So all these websites are claiming that Swedes do this regularly between Ascension Day and Midsummer, but I don't think I've ever met anyone who has actually done it. And the Express and news editor, Sara Mitchell Malm, who tweeted this story, well, that's where I first saw it. She said she hadn't she hadn't heard anyone do it either. So the reason that you're all claiming that I started this 
is that me and Shandana, one of our freelancers, did write a word of the day on Yerkotta last year because Shandana came across it in one of her SFE classes, uh, Swedish, Swedish for immigrants classes. But I really doubt that that's where people have got it from because our article had a lot of really nerdy etymology stuff in. It had like Sanskrit, stuff like that, and lots of rhymes about cuckoos, which somehow mysteriously didn't make it into these kind of fluffy, oh, here's this new Swedish lifestyle trend. Can't believe they <laughs> ignored the rhymes about cuckoos. Mm. Imagine how surprised we'd be if, if Anna actually practiced Yakuta. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I only heard about it in church connection connotations, actually, but... It's very diffuse for me, actually. I don't know. I could I couldn't tell. Now I know more than I did before you would right. <laughs> you yeah, told yeah, yeah. me. <laughs> I did actually hear a cuckoo on Ascension Day, I have to say. Several. Oh really? Many. I oh, woke which... up in our caravan, which is in a wood, and there were cuckoos everywhere, to the extent that I couldn't find I had no idea which direction they were coming from. Or... You, you know it matters which direction you hear it. It from, does right? hugely. Yes. Yeah, exactly. The only one I remember is Vestayak, a Vestayak. Well, that's the West <laughs> yes. cuckoo is the best cuckoo. <laughs> yeah, but in the South, Söderjök is, is the worst because that's Döderjök. Yeah, so as long as none of them so are coming from the South, Richard, cuckoo. you'll be fine. Yeah. If they're coming from every direction, then I guess it's a bit of a Russian roulette. So you've written an article about some other Swedish lifestyle trends that have captured the world's imagination. Becky, can you fill us in on those? Well, the less trends that have captured the world's imagination are more kind of tongue-in-cheek suggestions for the next time some poor reporter gets asked to find a funny Swedish word to try and launch as the next hygge or fike or friluftsliv or lagom. So some of my suggestions include testing your endurance by engaging in the Swedish art of super next midsummer, <laughs> which essentially consists of drinking copious amounts of brenvin uh, spirits uh, until you find yourself dancing around a maypole in a trance-like state pretending to be a frog. You can heighten your sense of perception in the ancient Swedish art of undvikandet, which is how you learn how to sense the presence of your neighbours in the stairwell. So you can avoid having to acknowledge their existence in any way. Mm. I really enjoyed that one and I, I practiced that one. Yeah, so. yeah, you're a true Swede. You're a true Swede mm. practicing the art of Unvikendit. <laughs> I mean, they all have to have a catchy name, of course. And then the final one, which arguably actually is a lifestyle trend, is the Swedish art of Fredogsmus, where you can hone your skills of patience and restraint by not eating unhealthy food five days a week only to let it all loose and have a hedonistic mm. Friday by eating an entire week's serving of sweets in one day. So I, I personally can already imagine the books on the Swedish art of super in airport shops. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. Well, there's already, they've already done the, the Finnish one, this Kalsar, no, Kalsarishenet, which means drinking at home alone in your underwear, which is already, be, that's mm. already done, had the whole log on treatment. It's been written up everywhere. <laughs> 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 I, I got that out of the way as a 20-year-old. <laughs> it's a bit harder when you have kids. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks a million for those, Becky. And we'll put links in the notes so everybody can read up on the next big Swedish lifestyle trends. One trend that never did catch on was Brexit. You may remember that one. It was the UK's decision to leave the European Union. And some commentators predicted after the British referendum that it would lead to a domino effect with Europe's populations clambering to take back control from the faceless banana-straightening technocrats in Brussels. But that very much didn't happen. Even a traditionally Eurosceptic party like the Sweden Democrats quietly ditched its EU opposition back in 2019. But earlier this month, the party's leader, Jimmy Okeson, re-invoked the spectre of a Swexit when he wrote a debate article calling for a re-evaluation of Sweden's membership of the European Union, which raises many questions, not least why now? 
To get answers on this, Richard had a chat this week with Ian Manners, who's a political science professor at Lund University. We're going to listen now to a short excerpt where he talks about how, even though the prospect of Sweden leaving the EU is extremely unlikely, a referendum could help the Sweden Democrats achieve their goals. Brexit has taught us that there's a trick up their sleeve and it's called a referendum. And you may as well spin the, the drum on a revolver when you play the referendum card. My suspicion is, isn't that their goal is actually, interestingly, not, not to leave the EU. It's probably to have a referendum which may present the possibility of leaving the EU. But it would certainly present them as the leading voice in Sweden on the merits of leaving the EU, which puts them closer to their ultimate dream, which is actually government in Sweden. That was Ian Manners. Richard, you had a long conversation with him and you've written up an analysis piece that we'll link to in the notes. But can you give us a summary of why he thinks the Sweden Democrats want to put Swexit on the agenda? And if we start with the clip we just heard, how would a referendum get them closer to leading Sweden's government? Well, it might not get them closer to leading the government, but what it would do is make them the leading voice of one side of what would be the biggest issue under debate in Swedish in mm. the Swedish media. So even if they lose the referendum, which they probably would, it would still be to their to their benefit. And what he's pointed to is that they, they'd want to be in a position a bit like the Leave campaign in the UK, which created this new dividing line in UK politics that cut across left and right between Remainers and Leavers. And Boris Johnson then harnessed the Leave vote and won this massive landslide in the uh, 2019 election. And I think even though it wouldn't be exactly the same situation in Sweden, and it's almost certain, as um, Ian said, it's almost certainly not going to be a referendum on EU membership per se. I think the hope would be that they would just be completely in the spotlight and, and able to lead the other parties. I mean, they would be the main voice for saying no in whatever referendum this is, because the the moderates couldn't say, all the other parties would be split. I mean, the left party has been against EU membership before, hasn't they? Yeah, perhaps the the only other party would be the left party. But I can't really imagine the left and the Sweden Democrats, they couldn't be more different. Yeah, you can't see them campaigning together in the same... No, I can't imagine that. No. But 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 the thing is, the reason it won't be um, it, it's unlikely to be an in-out referendum on EU membership is that the latest polls show that that's extremely unpopular. Because there's a survey I think last week that showed that there's a record number of Swedes who are in favour of EU membership at the moment. I think 68% of voters are in favour and only 11% mm. are against. And that's even mm. the case for Sweden Democrat voters. Like a yeah. 43% of Sweden Democrat voters say they're in favour of EU membership which is up from 23% just a few years ago. So so the, the party's own members are now becoming more EU-friendly. So it's a bit weird that the leadership is now going in the other direction. But So I think what the referendum would be, if you read Jimmy Orkerson's article, he says that what they want to do is put a new law through Parliament that means that any significant extension of EU powers would have to be agreed by a referendum uh, by the Swedish people. And I think that's kind of the thin end of the wedge. So what they're hoping for is they can put enough pressure on the government parties to agree that. That seems like not a great deal. But but when the EU then goes ahead and does this, then it would force a referendum on the government or all the next government. It would be on something like, you know, extending EU powers over defence or something like that. It would be something relatively small, but they then they would lead the campaign against that, which is what's happened in Denmark. Mm. So in Denmark, there's been the succession of referendums, uh, both first on the Maastricht Treaty and then on the various opt-outs that Denmark got 
after the Maastricht Treaty to, so that they would vote for it. And the Danish government has time and time again lost these referendums. And it's always been to the benefit of the right-wing parties that are against it, like the Danish People's Party. And, the, right. and as you know, the Sweden Democrats have a very... They keep a very close eye on what's happened in Denmark over the last 20 years. So I think they're trying to be in the same position the Danish People's Party has been in when they've had referendums and, and, and then get the electoral benefits from that. And are there any other sort of um, benefits for the Sweden Democrats of flaunting their Euroscepticism as they see it? I mean, absolutely. I think it helps them with two main things. One is that they need a new, they need a new cause because they've got almost everything they want to do on immigration in the government's current programme. So they're casting around for something else that they can seize on to, to create a bit of distance between the government parties and the, and the opposition parties on the left. And so they've tried the environment and I think it hasn't quite worked out for them. And I think the EU is the next one. They're sort of trialling it and thinking, can we build a position around this that can replace immigration as our sort yeah. of one of our main issues? So there's that. And then the second mm. one is that they are increasingly realising, and this is something Ian talked about in our interview in quite a lot of detail, that a very large amount of the programme that they got into the TETA agreement cannot be enacted because of it's, it's already within the domain of EU legislation or it's controlled by the European Court of Human Rights or the European Convention of Human Rights. So you're very constrained as to what you can do about refugees because of, because of these European bodies. So I think what they're doing is creating a situation where they can present the, the European Commission, the European Union and, and the Court of Human Rights as a kind of enemy which is blocking them from doing what they want to do. So, so they can blame, because they can't blame the government anymore because they're more or less part of it, they can instead mm. blame Europe when everything that they've promised voters can't actually happen. That's what I think is, is, is possibly the other benefit that they're looking for. But Ian wasn't sure that any of this would work. <laughs> he, he, he was saying, you no. know, this is what they're trying to do, but I think they might have to backtrack because no one really wants a Swexit. And uh, no one wants Sweden to leave the European Union. And yeah, it, he, he's just not. He, he was doubtful as to whether they could get their members and build enough of a kind of support movement behind this. I mean, it's difficult to imagine people looking at the UK after Brexit and being like, "Yeah, I want that." For my <laughs> exactly, exactly. As a Brit, I can't imagine people wanting to do that. Don't do it. <laughs> it didn't go well for us. <laughs> but one thing that Ian was really interesting on is he said that the, the example of the UK shows that these things can change really quickly because there wasn't a big groundswell of opinion mm. in favour of leaving the European Union in the UK no. before the referendum. And the referendum campaign created that groundswell. And what he says is that he, he thinks that people in, in Sweden who are pro-EU should get in really quickly and try to educate the people, the population, as to what leaving the EU or even having opt-outs like Denmark from EU legislation would mean. Because he's mm. saying, you know, look at Skorna, which is the, the the heartland of the Sweden Democrats. I mean, you could almost call them the Skorna Democrats. Its entire economy is based on being across, a lot of its economy is based on being across the bridge from Denmark and the European Union. And, and if close you, to Germany. And close to yeah. Germany. And if you had like border controls, uh, mm -hmm. taxation it would be worse than than what the uk seen in dover it, and it would it would collapse the economy in scorna it would be a catastrophe and he reckons that in the swedish debate you know the, the pro eu side should be out now and just trying to hammer these these this information into into people's heads so that if the debate does come as happened in the uk 
the population is already educated because as the the remain side saw in the uk referendum it's very very hard to educate voters within the short period of, of a uh, referendum campaign you just they just completely failed to get this these this information through to voters uh, it was a really interesting interview and anyone wanting to learn more about it can find richard's article in the show notes Let's talk now about the government's plans to create a much more hostile environment for people deemed to be living in Sweden illegally. According to the TIDA agreement signed by the three coalition parties and the Sweden Democrats, public servants will be obliged to report people to the police if they can't show they have the right to be in Sweden. A lot of public servants, such as teachers, librarians and medical professionals, have objected to what they describe as snitch laws, and many of them say they'll point-blank refuse to obey them. Healthcare workers, as I mentioned, have been very vocal in their opposition, and there's also been an interesting political development on this in the Skåne region this week. Emma, can you tell us what's happened? So the the regional government in Skåne has uh, gone against the government on this and uh, voted that healthcare staff should actually not be forced to report people, that they should be exempt from any laws like this. And all the parties in Skåne, from left to right, agreed on this and criticised the government's proposal, except for the Sweden Democrats. This is interesting because Skåne is run by a right-wing coalition, the Moderates, Liberals and the Christian Democrats, with, yeah. with the support of the Sweden Democrats, just like the national government. So this kind of shows that this, well, there's a split between the regional government and the national government, but there's also a split between like the regional government and the Sweden Democrats on a regional level. Yeah. And um, some people are wondering if this could kind of be the first sign of the relationship between the Sweden Democrats and the other right-wing parties kind of falling apart a little bit. And could this mm. happen at the national level eventually too? What's more is that healthcare is run on the regional level in Sweden. So it it matters what the regional governments have to say. And Skåne especially, it's Skåne is home to Malmö, Sweden's third biggest city. It's one of the biggest and most powerful regions. And it's also got its kind of own cultural identity. And it's it's never been scared of kind of going it alone. And it's hard to do anything really without the support of Skåne, which, which also tends to have some of the most vocal regional politicians. So you don't want to fight with them because they will fight you back. Can we bring you in here, Anna? What have you heard from healthcare workers with regard to this planned requirement to report undocumented migrants who need healthcare? Uh, in general, I think uh, healthcare workers are very opposed to this. Mm. It's hitting the heart of the healthcare system in Sweden and all the ethical codes mm. of uh, all healthcare workers. And uh, a lot of them see that it's a human right to have healthcare. There's been uh, a few debate articles about this, and that was quite early, actually, just after when the T this uh, TID agreement was was newly announced. There's also a contradiction in this TID avtalet. On the one hand, we have a healthcare minister. She is talking about that Swedish healthcare needs to be more equal, and at the same time, in TID avtalet, you're supposed to report people who mm. are actually in need of healthcare. And also, we we wrote articles about this uh, because uh, there are the association of doctors. There are two, two different. They are the, more the union or the professional right. 
and and that organization Läkarförbundet is more conservative but the Läkarförbundet is also opposed to this actually mm. and then there is a Swedish uh, association of of doctors that is more they, they are more into discussing these ethical problems and that's what people say when we when we interview them that this uh, collides with the principles of healthcare in Sweden. It's a human right to have healthcare. If I can say something about the region of Skåne, I, I could I could see two different political reasons why they do this in Skåne. It's, it's one one thing is that the Swedish healthcare system at the moment, after the pandemic, is in under a lot of pressure. Mm. And uh, the, I think that this is, might be a sign that um, the politicians have to stand up for the healthcare workers because they can't afford uh, a situation where there is an insecurity. And another thing is that when they point this to the government, I think people are actually feeling this insecurity about the TIDA agreement and, and what what it will mean. How do you see this playing out? Will there be legal challenges if this law is brought in requiring healthcare workers to report definitely migrants? Yeah. definitely i think a lot of people uh, healthcare workers can't see how this will be thanks for that update on opposition to the government's plans to make the healthcare system a more hostile place for undocumented migrants say hello to a new era of mental health care Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're going to stay with healthcare now. When we've ask listeners what you'd like us to cover. This is a topic that many of you have brought up. And now we have Anna here to help us make sense of it all. And we asked readers of The Local to submit questions on the healthcare system. We got a really big response and we're going to go through some of the questions in an extra episode that we'll release during the week. But first, Anna, can you please give us an overview of how the Swedish healthcare system ranks in international comparisons? In international comparisons, the Swedish healthcare ranks quite high mm. uh, because we, we have good medical results and very, especially in the advanced healthcare, mm. specialized healthcare. And uh, we have the lowest uh, death rates in the EU or among, we are among the countries in the lo- with the lowest death rates when you talk about avoidable deaths. Uh, yeah. 
and due to early discovering of illnesses and of or early treatment and uh, we have a high survival in after stroke and uh, also in um, different kinds of cancer and mm. this is this has changed uh, this uh, this has been a quite dramatic change in may, in maybe 10 15, 10 20 years with the pro- medical pro- progress and as sweden climbed the rankings over yeah. the, over the last 10 20 years yeah. then yeah. yeah yeah that's right you can cure things and you put people also live with cancer today that they you couldn't do in like 10 years and we also have a very few cases of a maternity deaths in mm. sweden so very safe uh, maternity care after the pandemic there were a lot of official reports about this uh, the swedish system and also about the healthcare and one thing which is on the the negative side is that swedish healthcare in comparison has a lack of continuity and for decades our uh, primary care system is uh, insufficient financed and the, the infrastructure of primary care is is not sufficient to the needs of the of the people you can say and also there's a lack of uh, coordination between different parts of healthcare different levels of healthcare right and how does the you mentioned the lack of continuity mm. how does that manifest itself for example when you ask people there is uh, annually or maybe every other year there is there are internationally surveys about the state of healthcare in in Sweden and other OECD countries and last year there there was a report about primary healthcare and in Sweden uh, 25% of the Swedes have a personal doctor and uh, that is if you compare to i think it's like 85 percentage in the OECD countries 25 compared to 85%. Yes, i think it's something Who like that. You have like a general yes. practitioner their yes. own general practitioner yeah. Yeah, and we only have to go to neighbor countries like Norway. <laughs> Norway are, have been very successful in their uh, primary health care and 96 or 97% of the Norwegians have a personal doctor. Mm. So that's kind of a record. Yeah. <laughs> Now they have a little problems as well but the thing is now when i was on my way here i actually read when you dig into this 25 percentage have a personal doctor maybe it's not as bad as it as it as it sounds because mm. there has been in the late in the last years you, there there has been an, inc- an increase in the in elderly people with their personal contact so you have and then you have improvements because i think you pri- prioritize the elderly elderly people in this sense so you have a little they are not as it's not as bad i think it was like 60 65% it's not always that you have personal doctor but maybe you have a personal nurse that you have in you that organize your uh, healthcare so to right. say Why why is the figure so low in Sweden? I mean, what's the what's the organizational yes. reasoning behind it? I would say there are two main reasons for this, and one reason is that in a lot of countries, not a lot of countries, in Scandinavia and in and in in Britain, also other countries, but the primary healthcare has been organized around general practitioners, mm. and that uh, and that you are. Uh, you're actually your healthcare is organized by your personal general practitioner yeah. but in Sweden the organization is rather around the primary centers uh, you're not enrolled with your personal doctor that there's been periods when they tried when we've tried to do this but this has always been 
contradicted by the fact the Swedish primary care is organized in these primary healthcare centers. Mm. And then I think during or during history, there's been this view that this is enough for continuity. Right. But in the last year, when I I wrote about this report about Sweden, the 25 percentage of Swedes have this personal contact. Now the authorities say that this isn't enough. Right. So it, so it is moving in yeah. in, in a direction yeah, they say of th- having this a personal isn't GP. En- yeah. yeah, it's not enough for reaching this continuity and this sense of continuity. And you also see that because people get... Uh, uh, and that was, a, that was actually a report yesterday from the region of Stockholm that you see an increase in people's complaints about the, emerge- the waiting times in the emergency rooms because people go to um, the emergency rooms in the hospitals when there is too much pressure on the primary care system. Right. And does this differ a lot between the regions? Because like, you've talked about how this is, you know, Sweden, Sweden's healthcare is organized regionally. So are there regions that have a much higher percentage of people having their own GP, for example? Mm, I, I'm not sure about the, the, the regional fig, figures in that sense. I just, I, I know that are different. There are certain, uh, yeah, there are areas where you can get, where you have a better, where you have better organized system. I, mm. I was in the, I was in a very small place in, in Dalarna, very small place where you had like one and a half hours drive to the next hospital. Mm. But there, there was you had this primary care station which, which worked excellently. But they also do small; they do everything, and that's one thing people also asked about. I think that Swedish healthcare is very f- fragmentized. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this goes f- especially, I think, in the big cities. In some uh, small areas, you have actually better primary care than in the big cities. I think even the, even if you have in the big areas you have a lot of clinics you have a lot of supply yeah but it's more it's more disorganized right it also depends on how much you have privatized because in sweden there has been a trend with privatization of healthcare and that well, that was my idea when i was in dalarna in dalarna they haven't privatized so much okay so when these doctors in this little healthcare system in in this village in dalarna when they had to have uh, second opinion or uh, to because they 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 made x-ray and everything but they to interpret this x-ray slides i think they had they they had this direct contact with mura and this was very efficient people here in stockholm they sit hours on ends and they even have to stay overnight in the emergency room Mm. are there any general conclusions to be made about the privatization i mean how does how does it work is it similar to the school system that everything is publicly funded but it can be privately run yeah it's it's uh, yeah it's it's similar it's uh, organized on the same base base you can say yeah. mm. although and the healthcare was like a little came a little after when you did privatized healthcare uh, after the same principles so to say yeah the school system was the model for this yeah in perspective when you talk about it now and the and the ongoing debate it's like it's easy to think why did they do this and yes you can think why did they do this but in in this in this time there was also a lot of criticism around around the public healthcare system as it was then yes and there, there was in this time i think it started in the 90s and then mm. there was a big 
debate in Sweden, not only Sweden, because Sweden was inspired, not the least from um, from Britain, actually, with the new public management uh, ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about those new public management ideas a little bit? What what are they? What does that entail? I'm actually writing a book about this. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. It, it, in this Tell moment. us more. So this is <laughs> about this privatization of healthcare. New public management is um, there are ideas from the industry actually to that you want to implement into the welfare state mm. to make it more official and also to make it more. Um, Countable, I think. Do you want to you want to have a more con- under control to measure things and also to decentralize so that you could mm. that you can maneuver the system from a distance. But as a result, you have a lot of manuals. Some Swedish researchers call this paperization. <laughs> that mm. there are lots of formulas you need to fill in, and if. And at the negative side of this is that you tend to forget the things in between, so to say. That's one. That's probably one reason why we have a fragmentized healthcare system too. That there's different reasons for that, of course, because also medicine is getting more and more specialized, and then you have this subspecialization. But the risk with this is that you get to all these. They are not talking to each other. Right. Yeah. Like silos. silos. Yeah. We had a. A schools expert on the podcast last week who talked about how teachers were drowning in documentation. is It sounds like it's similar in the healthcare professions. Yes. Now, if we come back to the general practitioners, that's one of the problems with the general practitioners. Working on this book I'm working on now, I have interviewed a lot of general practitioners, actually. And there are so many people struggling to make this work for the patients. Yeah. To... Uh, trying to avoid patients to be moved around in this system rather than taken care of. But one, and I should have said that before, but one reason also why it's difficult to get in contact with a general practitioner in Sweden is because there is a lack of general practitioners. And also when the the working situation, Mm -hmm. it's like when you have a very specialized or more more special because the the specialized care in Sweden and especially the the high specialized care like in Karolinska has a very is is very um progressive and has very high uh, scores also internationally but when you get when you have this situation with with medicine getting more and more specialized then and I also interviewed doctors in in Sweden, but also in Norway, the general practitioners say then their role gets crucial. It's crucial for the patients that you have someone who sum, sum, summons up all their... Who sort of has, all, has ownership all the, of all yes, their healthcare all the needs. Threads, yeah. All the threads around the patients. Yeah. And if you don't have that, it's very, it's also very, it's very frustrating. It's so frustrating for the doctors. Mm. It's also frustrating for the patients. And it's also expensive for society mm. and you have this situation where we have i think uh, it's around 7000 uh, general practitioners in sweden uh, not all of them are working in the primary care but the authorities have tried now actually in the last years there's an ambition to work around this uh, 
primary care to make it better and to to and to to improve this uh, lack of continuity in in average the practitioners have uh, 2400 patients in Sweden and but last year the socialstyrelsen the national board of health and welfare yeah. yes they put a figure on what do we want what, this is this is our aim so to say and that was 1100 patients so now this is a, like an aim <laughs> they are working around mm. when this came this uh, like this figure was pronounced or formulated that's actually the this is actually a parallel to Norway because that's the average they have 1100 on their list right, right. in in gotcha. average gotcha. although they they also work they also <laughs> loaded with work in Norway but at, at least they have a different situation they have they are on a different different level in this sense but um, and the union and the professional organizations of the primary care doctors in Sweden they welcome this uh, that you got this figure so now we know what we're working for and and but and some critics say oh yes but how can we reach this it's it's um, it's it's like uh, when there are so few doctors yes yes but uh, but, but the profession, the professional organizations, they argue more that yes, but this is what we need to we need to strive for this because we have also this like in all the Western countries, we have an aging population and people also at the same time. Um, if we have healthcare system under pressure on the one hand, that's also because people are aging. People live longer. Mm. And they will need, when they live more, they live with their diseases, like I said, with cancer, heart condition, diseases that you would die from like 10, 15 years ago. So we need to have this, we need to work about around this, is the, the view from the professional organizations. And the politicians, are they going to change it? Last weekend, there was a conference with these um, general practitioners and the, the health minister she was there, she was on the conference and also the opposition, Lena Hallengren, who was the mm. the health minister before. They were quite um, united about this uh, goal. So I think there are hopes, <laughs> although there has been, this has been go- going on for 30 years that they tried to, to organize the first line healthcare in Sweden. It's a challenge and at the same time i think it's it's hopeful when you see that in in sweden in denmark and in norway they actually make it work much better than here so it it's not impossible and that's all for this week thanks to our guest anna gustafsson who you'll be able to hear more from as she answers readers' questions in our midweek episode. Our panellists today were Emma Lovegrain, Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul Amani. Until next time, take care. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.